So the way the Stoics treat some emotions is they are cognitive, you need to talk to them and you need to modulate them. You need to come to terms with those emotions. And I said some emotions because those are the, the ones that I've been talking about so far are the, the emotions that the Stoics refer to as unhealthy. Things like anger, uh, fear, for instance, uh, grief in, with certain qualifications and so on and so forth. Why are they unhealthy? Because they all tend to override reason. When you are in the thralls of that kind of emotion, you don't think straight. They get in the way of your thinking, essentially. And since, of course, for a Stoic, the most important thing you can do, remember, is to think reasonably, <laughs> rationally. Anything that gets in the way of that, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And so you need to deal with it. In this podcast, I'm going to be exploring what it takes to live a life full of adventure and freedom. I'll be interviewing adventurers, explorers, and business owners who have set their life up to have an abundance of choice. And I'm also going to give you the high performance tips and tricks I teach my adventurepreneur clients to have the kind of life they want and be the type of person they wish they were. So if you're not already, subscribe to the show and settle in for another episode of The Freedom Project. Being a Stoic is incredibly fashionable these days. It's also exceptionally effective at helping you get the things in your life that you actually desire. I've helped so many clients in the Adventurepreneur Collective successfully apply it to their biggest challenges and I've seen the incredible results that it reaps. However, for so many, Stoicism is this kind of nice to have and is far more theoretical than practical. Massimo Picciucci is a modern day Stoic, both in an educational and actionable sense. His book, How to Be a Stoic, has impacted me deeply, and I'm looking forward to bringing you some key lessons from that exact same book within this podcast with him. Alongside the book, we also discuss the difference between healthy and unhealthy emotions, how to master your response to the most challenging situations you'll face, the golden rules of journaling, the steps to attaining true excellence, and far more besides. So here is Massimo Pigliucci. I'd like to start this just by saying welcome and carry on with the obvious sycophancy that I started this with and say uh, thank you so much for, for your work. It's been hugely important to me and it's made stoicism very practical and very intentional and um, uh, it's given me a deeper understanding. So thank you very much for that. Oh, glad, glad to hear it. It's, it's good to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So firstly, let's let's do the obvious question that you must get bored of answering, um, but I think it's a nice way to start this. Where did you originally get the interest in stoicism from? Uh, that's a good question. It actually came fairly came fairly late um, in life, so to speak. It was a midlife crisis kind of situation. Uh, you know, I was uh, doing my first career in the middle of my first career as a biologist. Things were going fine. I had a lab that was funded uh, and with good students and all that sort of stuff. But then at some point, I started thinking, "Wait, do I do I really want to do this?" for the next 20, 30 years. It's like, it seems like I should be doing something different. And that actually, long story short, led me to philosophy um, for some reason, for a complicated set of reasons. I enrolled in a PhD program in philosophy uh, with the intention of adding philosophy to, to my uh, academic path. But once you start studying philosophy, even at an academic level, then you know one of the first courses that I took, for instance, was on Plato. Another one was on ethics. And so you kind of kind of gets you thinking. It's like, oh, that's interesting. So th there are some resources here that go beyond the academic specialties um, that I might be interested in. And uh, since I was, as I said, in the middle of a kind of a midlife crisis, which was broader than just my career, I thought maybe maybe I should look seriously in, in one of these things that people call philosophies of life. And I started kind of systematically. I went through Buddhism first, which was uh, recommended to me by a number of friends and practitioners. And that was interesting, but it didn't speak to me uh, for a number of reasons, probably largely because the uh, culture is different and uh, the terminology, the metaphysics behind it, it's, it's very different from what I'm used to. So... It was interesting, but didn't do it. Um, then I pretty close, pretty, pretty quickly uh, zoomed into what is called virtue ethics. So Aristotle, Epicurus, the Stoics, that sort of stuff. Um, Aristotle didn't do it, too dry, not, not practical enough. Epicurus was very, came very close. The problem with Epicurus is that he recommends that in order to live a life without pain, 
and uh, a life of pleasure, you really should stay away from any kind of social or political involvement. And I thought, eh, no, I can't do that. And then one day, on the platform that is now called X, and at the time was called Twitter, uh, I saw this thing that said, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, the hell is Stoic Week? And why, why would I, anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Because I thought of the Stoics as many people do. Uh, stiff upper lip, suppressor of emotion, you know, basically an ancient version of Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And I thought, why, why would anybody want to do that sort of stuff? But I was curious, and uh, so I signed up. And the first Stoic that I read was Epictetus, and I was immediately into it. It's just like, he, the guy really spoke to me. His sense of humor, his no-nonsense kind of approach to life. Like, all right, I guess this is, this is the one. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> there's, there's two things that I'd love to hone in on there. The first one is this idea of how we view stoicism before we actually get there. And I was completely the same. And actually coming back to us reading through how to be a stoic again in preparation for this. And it's like, it's one of my most highlighted books um, <laughs> was this idea that we, we often think of stoicism as quite a passive thing. Um, I think it's a misconception, right. but there's this Epictetus quote that you share around. Um, he must be trained not to fail to get what he wills to get, nor fall into what he wills to avoid. And that's a very active agent agentic way of viewing the world which is completely at odds to this kind of cow in the rain just standing there miserably mentality that some people think of in regards to stoicism yeah absolutely uh, stoicism is very much an active philosophy you take um, a very close look and and very involved look at what you can actually do i mean the, the thing about epictetus in particular is that he stresses uh, that there is very little that we are we can exercise our agency on. That is, we are tend, we tend to be fooled by the fact that, by the notion that we have a lot of things under control. You know, we think that we control a lot more in our life that, than we actually do. It turns out when you start thinking about it for more than a few seconds, we don't. Uh, all sorts of things that we care about, typically such as relationships, career, reputation, wealth, health, and that kind of stuff. A lot of that is, in fact, uh, we can influence it, of course, but it's ultimately outside of our control in the sense that it depends on external factors that uh, we can't really do much about. So then what is it that is under our control? How we approach things, our judgment, how we think about certain things, and therefore the, the actions that we take. It's not just about thinking, uh, because sometimes you, you hear that, oh, so stars is just a mind trick. It's just about thinking about things differently. Well, first of all, that is a powerful mind trick, which has uh, a lot of backing also from modern cognitive science and you know research in psychology. Uh, psychologists are very aware of the fact that, in a sense, our entire life is a mind trick. It, it, it depends a lot on how you think about stuff. But thinking about certain things leads to acting about on those things in certain ways rather than others. So it's not like there is any kind of disconnect and the Stoics just sits back and, and doesn't do anything. But what the Stoics do, the Stoic does is thinking very carefully about his values and about what he can do, actually do, not in a fantasy land, but in reality to uh, further his goals and to further uh, you know, his objectives. That's fascinating, and that makes it so much more appealing. Uh, so, I, to fill you in on, on my background a little bit, I, I help business owners perform at a high level. And the one way, one of the ways that I do that, well, there's three ways: the nerve system regulation, priming yourself for challenge, so you actually respond positively to it. Um, then we effective execution, so doing things that actually move you forwards, and then the self mastery thing. That's a way more sexy way of saying it than virtue ethics which doesn't like people see that and go hmm like not really too keen yeah. but when you make it actually practical in terms of i'm putting these sets and reps in to becoming a better version of myself and to doing the right thing consistently that has way more um, pull to it yeah no absolutely yeah you're right that the terminology of course especially the um, ancient greek terminology can be off-putting. Uh, there are, yeah, people that want don't, don't really like to think about or talk about virtue. For one thing, because when we when we see when we hear the, the the word virtue, we tend to think about the Christian virtues, and particularly things like purity and chastity and all that sort of stuff. And it, the Sto Stoicism has absolutely nothing to do with that. Although the the 
historically, the Christians did take the concept of virtue from the Stoics. Uh, if you look at Thomas Aquinas, arguably the most influential Christian philosopher of all times, uh, he has uh, he arrives at the end at, uh, at a total of seven virtues that Christians should uh, practice, and the first four are actually wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Those are the Stoic virtues, which he took and just put straight into the into the Christian system. But the word virtue itself, it's kind of you know it sounds old and it's dusty like, you know, and dusty. You know what, yeah. what, are you, what are you talking about? But we have also to remember that virtue, which does come from the Latin ver, uh, which usually means it's translated as manly. And, and that, by the way, gives yet another opportunity to people to misunderstand stories. It's like, oh, it's about being manly. It's about being a, you know, a manly man. It's like, no, it's not, nothing to do with that. Because the Latin ver was actually a translation of the Greek arete. And arete just means excellence. So to be virtuous just means to be the best human being you can. That's that's really all it, what, what it boils down to. In fact, the concept of arete is is general. It doesn't apply just to human beings and to ethics. Uh, if you want, for instance, if your problem is that you need a, a new knife uh, to cut your bread, you want an arete knife. You want a, a knife that cuts the bread properly because otherwise, uh, you know, you might, it might slip and cut your finger instead. Or, uh, and that wouldn't be a good idea. So arete, the, con the concept of excellence, applies to anything that has a function. Right? So what is the function of a knife bread? To properly cut bread. Uh, what is the function of this computer screen that I am looking into is to make me make it possible for me to have a conversation with you, among other things, and so on and so forth. But now, what makes for a good, you know, an excellent bread knife? The fact that it cuts properly the bread. What makes for an excellent screen? The fact that I can see you clearly. <laughs> There's no blurs. Then you know it stays there throughout our conversation, and so on and so forth. Then you can ask yourself the question, well, okay, is, if, it's a, if we're talking about functions, then what is the function of a human being, right? And that's a little bit more difficult to, to answer as a, as a question. But both Aristotle and the Stoics gave it a lot of thought, and they thought, look, we need to look at what sort of animal human beings are. We are a highly social species. We're, we're a particular type of primate, and we're highly social, more much more social than than anybody, any any other primate species on Earth. And we're capable of reason. We don't necessarily reason well all the time, but you know we're capable of it. And in fact, those are, in a sense, we would say in modern in modern terminology, using modern terminology, we might say that those two are the evolutionary attributes that distinguish the human species from everything else. We don't have, you know, in terms of, if you think in terms of evolutionary uh, biology, the, what allows us to survive and reproduce, which are the things that matter in, in evolution, what is it? Well, we don't have big muscles, we don't have fangs, we don't fly, we don't swim very fast, you know, we don't do any of the stuff. What we do is we cooperate with each other and we have a large brain that makes it possible for us to solve complex problems. And so the Stoics, even before understanding evolution, thought, oh, okay, so nature has made us so that we are cooperative and smart. And therefore, an excellent human being, a virtuous human being, is somebody who exercises reason and cooperates with other people in order to solve problems. That's it. And it's like, wow, that's brilliant. So you've you've spoken around a question that I'm desperate to ask you, which is how you square your previous world of evolutionary biology with something that initially seems a little bit at odds with it, um, of right. philosophy. So like, how do you think about those two things? Because um, I'm sure there's some maybe contradictions or some opposing ideas within those. Yeah, there, there might be some tension between the two, but I think actually that tension is only superficial or, or apparent. First of all, we, let's step back for a second here. There are two major ways to think about philosophy. There, in fact, I would argue two different ways of doing philosophy. One is philosophy as we understand it today as a sort of an academic discipline. You know, th that's what I do for my, my day job. Next week, our semester resumes, so I'm going to teach a course on, let's say, uh, this semester can be philosophy of science. I publish technical papers in that on that topic. I then spend you know, a lot of time reading about that stuff and thinking about this stuff. That is philosophy as a technical field of expertise. 
which is similar to uh, literary criticism or history or science. It, it's no different. Uh, what, what my colleagues in other departments do is very similar to what I do uh, on the, during my day job. And then there is philosophy as a way of life. Philosophy as a way of life, which is what Stoicism, of course, is about, it has nothing to do with being technical and, and, and go on, on, on you know, discussing forever tiny little details and minutiae of this or that particular technical field. It has to do with thinking constantly and carefully about what is it you need to do in life and then do it, then actually do it. If you, start, if you only think about it without actually doing it, Epictetus would say you're wasting your time. So those two, now those two strands of philosophy, so philosophy as a, as a field of inquiry and philosophy as a way of life, have actually existed pretty much from the beginning. Western philosophy started with the pre-Socratics, the so-called pre-Socratics. In other words, everybody before, before Socrates, around the 6th or 5th century BCE. And those people were, by and large, with a few exceptions, uh, but by and large were inquirers. They were people, I'm talking about people like Anaximenes, Anaximander, Heraclitus, uh, and so on and so forth, Parmenides. Those were people who were interested in the nature of reality and trying to figure out how things work. Basically, they were the, the, the people that started what we today call uh, science. They, they started thinking about how the world works and how you figure out that. That's the inquiry part. So it's as old as at least the 6th century BCE. But then you get to the um, late 5th century BCE and you get to Socrates. And Socrates is the first one that explicitly turns his attention uh, to human life and human problems. He's the one, he's the first one that we know of who actually lives the philosophical life. He just doesn't, he's not actually interested in the, the big questions of metaphysics. He says, Is that no, true across the West and the East? Was there a similar kind of investigation in the East as well? That is a good question. Uh, yes, it, to some extent. It, things went slightly different. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I think you can argue, don't take my words for as, as uh, sort of uh, as the ultimate on it because I'm not an expert on Eastern uh, traditions, but you can argue that Buddhism started out actually as a type of so a Socratic approach to things, meaning as a philosophy of life. Buddha was not interested in, in the big metaphysical uh, questions, that's not what got him going. What got him going was he wanted to figure out what is a good life for a human being. So basically, he started out with the practical philosophy, philosophy as a way of life. But then the Buddhist tradition, at some point, had to confront the metaphysical questions. They had mm -hmm. to come up with answers to question of, okay, and what is, how does the world work and, and, and how do we figure that one out? And so at that point, yes, also in the East, basically the two traditions kept going uh, side by side. And I don't think, to go back to the original question, I don't think there is a contradiction there. Uh, you can be a philosopher in the inquire kind of you know, sense without actually practicing a philosophy of life. Most of my colleagues do that. Uh, you can certainly be a philosopher in the, in the practical sense without doing the inquiry. A lot of people can do that. You don't need a degree in philosophy. You need to have studied philosophy to practice philosophy as a way of life. And then, then, then there are those people like myself or Bill Irvine, who I think you have interviewed before, who do both. Right? <laughs> During the day, we, we go to uh, university and, and do the inquiry thing. And then for the rest of our lives, we, we do the practical philosophy stuff. Where does the disconnect come between knowing the right answer, the ethical virtuous choice and performing it like where if we're looking at that through the lens of, of philosophy or stoicism in particular where where do we stop and where do we where do we fail or why do we fail to execute the thing that we know we should be doing that's a great question and before i try to answer that however let me put forth the caveat I don't actually think we know the answers. Okay. We have some ideas about what good answers look like, um, but I don't think we know. Uh, I always try to remember that as a good philosopher one, or as a good thinker, one needs to be open to revision. If new facts and new arguments come up, then I might need to say, oh, okay, you know, guess what? Now we need to do things differently. However, provisionally, I 
as I said before, I've tried a number of, literally tried out a number of philosophies of life, and I've studied a much larger uh, set. And provisionally, I'm convinced that the Stoics, if don't, if they don't have the answer, they certainly have a answer that is that works well. Now. Now to your question. So, okay, uh, let's say I know the answer, which is in the case of Stoicism, uh, I should be living in agreement with nature. Uh, that's the Stoic model, which means, as we were discussing a few minutes ago, living r rationally, reasonably, and pro-socially, right? Uh, another answer that the Stoics give you is that, um, which we also kind of talked about, is what, it's some, what Epictetus calls the fundamental rule and what Bill Irvine calls the dichotomy of control. That is this notion that some things are up to us and other things are not up to us. And a good life consists in focusing, first of all, in realizing that, and then focusing on the things that are up to us, and then develop an attitude of acceptance and equanimity toward the things that are not up to us. A third answer that Stoicism gives you is that if you want a moral compass, if you prefer to think in terms of a moral compass in life, then you can use the four cardinal virtues. After all, they're called cardinal for a reason, uh, which I mentioned before, wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And everything you do, you can ask yourself, well, is this wise, temperate, courageous, and just? If the answer is yes, I'm going to do it. If the answer is no, I'm not going to do it. So that's the theory, right, in, in, a, in a nutshell. Then it comes to the practice. And yes, there is a little bit of, of an issue there turning the, the theory into practice because, of course, we're imperfect human beings. We're not sages. So we slip up. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I try to remember, you know, to focus on, on the fundamental rule, you know, what, is, what here is, is up to me and what is not up to me. And occasionally I slip up and I make a mistake and, and I tend to think that, now, I have more control over things than I actually do. Or sometimes I don't do things that are exactly temperate or just or courageous and so on and so forth. But that is not in itself a, uh, a deal breaker, right? Because think about one analogy which the, uh, the Stoics often make with um, physical exercise. So if you, if you want to exercise physically because you, you care about the, the health of your body, you know what you need to do, you know, you go to a, you go to, and if you don't, you go to a gym, you hire a, a trainer and the trainer will tell you what to do. And, you know, it's, uh, you have to do a certain amount of aerobic exercises you have to do in a certain ways and you have to, you know, lift weight in a certain ways. You have to do certain routines and a certain frequency and so on and so forth. And then you say, oh, you know what, today it's really cold and I don't feel like going to the gym. I'm going to stay home and eat potato chips in front of the TV. Now, you know that that's not right. <laughs> that's not good for you, right? And yet you do it because you're a human being. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not a superhuman. You're not somebody who always does the right thing. But the, that's not a deal breaker in the sense that then you realize and you say, you know what? Okay, fine. Tomorrow I'll, I will get up and go to the gym and resume my routine. So it's okay to sleep up once in a while, to have some setbacks, so long as you pay attention and you don't use that as an excuse for <clears throat> not doing anything anymore, right? You, you realize, you say, oh, okay, I could have done better in this particular case. No sense in beating myself up because what's done, it's done. But let's use that as a, as a lesson for tomorrow, for, for the future. You know, I was having this conversation with a, with a friend a couple of weeks ago and it was a few beers deep and we're sat around an open fire and it's one of those perfect times for a deep, long conversation, especially when we hadn't seen each other in like a year and actually almost a year. And it's like, okay, proper conversation. One of the things we came around to is like how good it feels to in, indulge yourself in self-pity. Like how reassuring and yeah. kind of safe it feels. It's, it's like this warm coat that you can kind of slip into and it's kind of protective and it goes well no courage needed here i can just be completely um yeah self-pitiful and, and and reject any autonomy i have in the world and the answer that we came up to with that was was courage the ability to step out one of those virtues but what do you what do you think about that why do you why do you think we we choose the easy option so many times well, Aristotle will say that we use the we choose the easy option because we suffer from a common condition, human condition called in Greek akrasia. It literally translates as weakness of the will. So you know 
what the right thing to do is, and yet you have a hard time, you know, getting yourself up uh, and actually do it. Aristotle was a good psychologist, was a good observer of, of human psychology. So he, he, he knew, he understood that, that that's what happens. However, he also saw that as a failure of virtue. Right? So basically what you're, what you're doing there is you are cutting yourself too much slack. You, you are giving yourself excuses. You can rationalize those excuses. As you say, it feels good uh, when you talk yourself into certain things, right? So you can rationalize. And there is a big difference between, of course, rational thinking on the one hand and rationalizing on the other hand. A lot of people, especially smart people, are very good at rationalizing right? Because, because they're smart. <laughs> they know a lot of things. So they can talk themselves into all sorts of stuff, even though somewhere deep down, they know that that's actually not the right, the right way to think about it. The Stoics were aware of this. And that is why they suggested repeatedly that what we need is a buddy system, essentially. So it's all fine and dandy to, uh, you know, spend some time thinking about your life and you know, analyzing your own behavior and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, if you just, if you are the only one doing it, one of these days you'll slip into rationalization. You will cut yourself too much slack, etc. So you need a buddy. You need somebody to check on you. And the Stoics suggested that there are two major ways to do this. One, you pick an actual person, a friend, a good friend, what Aristotle will call it, friend of virtue, that is somebody who actually really does have uh, your well-being at, at heart, and therefore they're not afraid to tell you that you're bullshitting yourself. You know, they're not afraid to tell you, nah, I'm sorry, you, you're just rationalizing this, this one, right? They're, those people are rare. It's hard to find that kind of person. But really, all you need is one. You don't need a number, you know, a large number of friends at that level. You can have a large number of friends on Facebook if you want. But of friends of virtue, you don't need one. If you have two or three, you're actually a lucky person because, because it requires, first of all, because they are rare. And second of all, because it requires, uh, that kind of friendship requires a, a sort of constant uh, involvement and effort in order to develop it and, and, and maintain it. So, so one thing you can do is basically to ask to engage regularly with somebody who you trust and say, hey, talk to me. Am I on the, right, on the right track here? Or do you think I'm doing something that I should be correcting? That's one way to do it. The other one is what I would call um, a virtual buddy. The Stoics call, called it a role model. So you pick somebody, and it, it doesn't have to be one person. It can be more than one person, depending on the stage of life, depending on the situation you find yourself in. And in fact, it doesn't even have to be a real person. It could be a, a, a sort of hypothetical, fictional role model. So long as what you do is you get into ha the habit of asking yourself, what, what would that person do under these kind of conditions, right? I mean, people do this outside of stoicism. If you go, especially in the South, in the United States, you'll see a lot of people going around with a bracelet that has WWJD, which means, what would Jesus do? Right? So that's the same, it's the same idea. Now, the problem with that is that Jesus, first of all, it's, of course, um, a hypothetical role model. But second of all, it's way too high of a bar. I mean, you're, you're literally taking a god as a, <laughs> as, a, as a bar for yourself. I mean, come on, cut yourself some slack. It's, you know, you know, that, that seems a little too much for me. Um, I, for instance, pick, often pick my grandfather, who I grew up with. Uh, Why? What appeals I, about your grandfather? Because he was always uh, a very decent person. He never got angry with anybody. He was always trying to do the right thing as he saw it. Um, he was uh, also personally charming. He was the kind of person you wanted to be around, but fundamentally he was a good person. And so I often find myself asking, well, would grandpa actually do that? Or what, what would he think about this kind of stuff? But you can also pick, as I said, a fictional role model. In, in my case, um, one of my favorites is actually one of those that the ancient Stoics themselves picked, and that's Odysseus. And the reason for that is because, and I'm talking about the Odysseus of the Odyssey, not the Odysseus of the Iliad, because they're actually 
significantly different kind of characters, as it turns out. The Odysseus of the Iliad is kind of a wily, you know, trickster. And, you know, he's, he's very smart, but, you know, after all, he's the one that came up with the idea of the Trojan horse. So he's it's, it's not exactly... Um, you know, an honest kind of person. <laughs> he gets the job done, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's some, he cuts some corners from an ethical perspective. But if you look at the Odysseus of the Odyssey, on the other hand, he's very courageous, he's very smart, um, and he has the heart in the right place. He, he mightily strives in order to bring his comrades back home safely. Eventually, he fails. They all die, except for him. But he does try very hard um, against impossible odds because he's got a god that is making making it difficult for him. You know, Poseidon is making it difficult for him to get back home. He wants to get back home. Why does he want to back go back home? Because he wants to be reunited with his wife uh, Penelope and his and his son Telemachus. And in order to do so, he turns down immortality, the gift of immortality, twice. Uh, not just once. So he's the kind of person that's like, wow, this this is this is really somebody that that one can uh, use look up to. Um, it's a little bit too high for me. I mean, I don't I don't actually aspire to be that that good. Um, uh, I think that I think I can I'd be happy with a little lower level. But then again, the point of picking a role model and somebody you aspire to it doesn't mean that you want to actually imitate. There's a difference between imitation. And aspiration, right? And as, somebody you aspire to is a, a model, is somebody that that shows you that things can be done in a certain way. It doesn't mean that you want to become a copy of them. Just a quick favor to ask: if you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to the Freedom Project and leave a five-star review, and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me, and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show. It reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. That's really interesting. And this is a kind of an open goal for you, I think, right now. Um, in the quest for character, um, what I think what we're, we're doing is, my opinion anyway, is say you're training physically and you can start out with a barbell and you can deadlift 40 kilos well you could look at the way someone moves and conducts themselves in the gym and you say wow that person can deadlift 300 kilos i want to move like them and become a slightly better closer resemblance of them um instead of i'm going to set up a barbell with 300 kilos on it now and just stand there and look at it <laughs> that's right and also you have to read, you have to understand of course that we're all different uh, we have different backgrounds including different genetic backgrounds right so it may be simply not possible for you to to lift 300 pounds because you might not have the kind of body built that that is required for that but it is certainly possible for you to improve to get mm -hmm. better Right. Not everybody gets to play at the Carnegie Hall, but everybody can actually learn to play a musical instrument. Yeah. Where do you think there's, or how do you apply virtue ethics to personality? Because what we know about personality is once you get to 25 or so on average, your personality is somewhat set. You have parameters that you operate in, in terms of openness, new experience, neuroticism, agreeableness, like yeah. those kind of parameters are somewhat set. But like, how do you how do you square virtue ethics with that and character skill training? That's an excellent question. There, there are a number of things there to consider. Uh, first of all, virtue ethics, you're supposed to be starting practicing virtue ethics from the age of reason. The age of reason is about seven years old. Uh, so, so we should be teaching it to our kids. Uh, and the reason for that is precisely what you're talking about. That is, even the ancients realized that character is shaped mostly between the age of reason and early adulthood. And in fact, this is confirmed by modern cognitive science. Uh, the age of reason does come, even according to modern developmental psychology, around seven or eight years old. It's defined as the age at which kids start being able to entertain complex, abstract thoughts. Okay, uh, and that's that's pretty much that that age. And in, and we know that the brain keeps work keeps growing until your early twenties. Uh, a little a little later, even for for men, men's brains tend to sort of settle Slate down a little up. later yeah that's that's right we're slight to you know late to catch up, catch up with things so so that's the window that's the major window and that is why virtual ethics or, or any kind of character training has 
the most important, the, the highest um, impact in that window. And of course, even that impact is limited by other conditions, including one's genetic makeup, right? I mean, there's nothing, you can't change your genes. So there are some people that are more, uh, let's say, naturally temperate, for instance, uh, and other that are more naturally intemperate. And there is, you know, you can, you can work around that a little bit. You can move things a little bit, but not, not dramatically. Now, that said, uh, there is research that shows that even your personality traits, as measured by modern tests, do change after your 20s, but not much and not frequently. And so it, it requires more mindful application to make any change after your early 20s, essentially. So in most people, the reason that most people's character traits don't change is because most people don't work on them. It's like mm. saying, it's again, think about the analogy with, you know, with the, your, the physical aspect of your body. Um, what determines how your body is going to look like for most of your life is, again, early, what you do early on. If you exercise when you're a kid, if you, if you go in certain routines, if you eat healthy and all that, then you're going to have a much smoother life. If you don't, then, you're gonna, then problems are going to start uh, showing up actually in your 30s or 40s, let alone later on. But that doesn't mean that you cannot do anything about it. You can still pick up and go to the gym at 40 or at 50 even if you've never done it before. And you will see some improvement. But of course, up to a point. You know, nobody's going to turn into an Olympic athlete if they start exercising at 50. You have to start doing that when you're five or six. And then, uh, you know, and then maybe you, you can actually get to that point. So we need to be careful about you know these these notion that well things don't change after a certain age they do it's just a little bit more difficult the change is more limited uh but you can still work on it and uh it's so it shouldn't be an excuse not to work on it basically um mm -hmm. a little bit of mindfulness and, and and application will do things in fact i can tell you about my own personal experience uh, as it turns out i have taken the uh the big five test multiple times in my life and I've actually kept the records. Nice. And uh, so I took it last time uh, a few years ago after I had started stoic training and stoic practice for a number of years. And so I thought, huh, let me see here. Am I, let me go back to my previous results and then it, it, has anything changed? And it turns out that some stuff had changed. All of the indicators had changed a little bit, but the openness, for instance, had changed dramatically. By, huh. by a fairly large number of points in what I would think is the, the right direction, meaning more openness. <laughs> and so now, of course, this is a sample size of one, and you know, I, I'm not going to say that's going to work for everybody. But as I said, there is also some systematic research that shows that if you engage mindfully with your own character training, act, as, as we might call it, you will be able to improve. You, you will be able to uh, to actually make things better, but within certain limits. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to know as well if you took a, because one of the, the way to get a different perspective on personality testing is to have close friends and family complete the form on your behalf as if they're answering for you. Yeah, and so question. that external um, opinion is often, often, well, you've got more data points to, yeah. to draw from. So it's an interesting yeah. way to view it and see if that correlated. But of course, we'll never know. Right. Uh, now, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, now, I do have to say that my friends and family did observe and comment on changes that they've seen even shortly after I started, uh, you know, embraced the stoicism and started practicing. People that are close to me saw that I was getting much less angry, uh, that, I, that I was approaching things, uh, you know, in a more open fashion, etc. And that was like that, those comments started coming in very quickly, like, you know, weeks or months into my, my practice. So it had even an initial effect. And again, we have data for that. The, the Modern Stoicism group uh, to which I, I belong, which is the one that actually organizes Stoic Week, the stuff that got me into Stoicism in the first place, they actually have started collecting data for a number of years uh, about people who signed up and then for Stoic Week, and then they asked them follow-up questions, you know, how... How was it uh, a week later? And then in some cases, they start doing follow-up months later. And there is pretty decent uh, empirical evidence at this point that, that uh, the practice does have an effect on the way people look at the world and the way uh, in which people act in the world. So if we try and make this 
applicable to people's lives and and very actionable. How do we begin actually training our character? How do we assess where we're at and start taking steps forward? You have to start doing on a regular basis what are, are referred to as spiritual exercises. Again, I'm going to make the, the, the analogy with physical fitness, right? So if you were to ask, you know, how do I start getting my physical fitness, uh, you know, in better shape? Well, you do two things. First of all, you start changing your, the way you think about your, your body and what you need to do and stuff. Because if you don't do that, then, then you're not even getting started. So there has to be some thinking going on here, right? Some acknowledgement that certain things could be done better, etc. And then you have to start into a regime, right? You have, you have to get on a healthier diet as much as possible. You have to start going to the gym. You still have to start going to certain routines. So the same goes with uh, practical philosophy and stoicism in particular. The first thing is a change of mindset. So, you know, the typical thing that happens is you start reading Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, and all of a sudden they say, oh, wow, I never thought about things that way. So let me, let me see if this is actually something that can work for me. And then you start engaging in a series of exercises. They're called spiritual exercises because there's a long tradition in, in the West of that kind of terminology. Uh, it was actually started by Ignatius of Loyola in the, six, in the 1500s. Uh, Loyola was the guy that um, established the Jesuit uh, sect within, within Christianity. Mm -hmm. And he called them spiritual exercises. He actually wrote a book of spiritual exercises. But he was inspired by the Stoics and particularly by Epictetus, uh, especially Epictetus' manual, the handbook, the, the Enchiridion. Now, um, there are... A number of ways of doing these exercises. If you check any blog post or podcast or book that is devoted to stories, you'll find uh, some reference to at least some of these exercises. Uh, my friend Greg Lopez and I wrote a book a few years ago called The Handbook for New Stoics, which actually contains 52 different exercises that people can try. That's a lot. I wouldn't recommend you know, starting from number one and going through number 52. In fact, that right at the beginning of the book, we actually give a, a sort of a, a cheat sheet. We'd say, okay, if, you, if you're just starting, here's a subset of like about six exercises that you want to start doing. And then the rest, you will, at some point, you might try them out and pick and choose depending on what your problem is or what my, your major issues are. For instance, if you... Um, you, you realize that you suffer from a little bit of anger management problem, then there are some exercises that are specifically about anger management. But broadly speaking, um, there are some standard exercises. One, the, I give you the most common is philosophical journaling. Think of Marcus Aurelius Meditations. That's a philosophical journal. And essentially what it, what, the way it works is every day, if possible, or, the, or at least several times a week, you find a few minutes, ideally in the evening before going to bed. You open your laptop or you open up your diary or whatever it is you use to, to write and you write down some thoughts about what happened during the day and how you reacted to it. There are some tricks to do it. The, 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 the general goal is, of course, to um, engage in a process of self-improvement, right? To realize what you did that didn't work very well, what you did that did work well, and then, you know, Try to do more of the first, less of the first and more of the second. But there are some tricks, some ways to do it. One thing you don't want to do, for instance, is to engage in emotional language. The point is not to relive. Uh, let's say, for instance, you say, oh, today I got really pissed off at a colleague. You don't want to relive the experience. That isn't the point because that's not very useful. The, the experience is past. It's in the past and the past is outside of your control. So the point isn't to just go back and relive emotion in the experience. If the, the, Quite the opposite. It is to analyze the experience as objectively and as in a, as detached a way as possible, so you can learn from it and not repeat it in the future. So, in order to do that, you don't use emotional language. You try to write things in the most analytic, most so detached way possible. And an interesting trick, which Marcus Aurelius actually also uses, interestingly, in the meditations, and from which there is very good empirical evidence in modern cognitive behavioral therapy is to write in the second person, not in the first person. So as if you were writing to a friend, oh, today you did this and you reacted in this way. And do you think that this was a good way to, you know, that sort of stuff. The reason for that is because, again, it helps you detach yourself emotionally from the experience.
it helps you uh, shift to an analytic mode. So philosophical journaling works. There is very, very good actually empirical evidence that people do significantly improve their behavior but when they start this kind of self-monitoring. Uh, it becomes a, over time, it becomes a database about your own uh, behavior and, you know, what, what works and what doesn't work, what kind of, especially if you do it electronically on a, on a laptop or, uh, or otherwise, then you can, then it becomes a searchable database basically. And so you can search for keywords like anger and trying to figure out. So last year, the word anger showed up, you know, this many times, but two years ago showed up more. So maybe I made some, some, a little bit of, of progress that way. So that's one very, uh, very useful and very common exercise. But there is a number of others. As I said, it depends on how much time you want to spend. It depends on what your specific issues are. Philosophical journaling is probably the most broad and the most common one. Uh, but I tend to do an, uh, on a regular basis something between seven, eight exercises on a, on a sort of rotational basis. Not necessarily every, every day because, you know, we all have a life. So, um, but although that said, that reminds me actually of a quote by Seneca who says, um, uh, you know, don't think that you can actually improve yourself only in the spare time. This hmm. should be a, a full-time job, meaning that there is everything you do in life is an opportunity to improve. When you go to work, when you go out with friends, when you come back at home and, and, and uh, interact with your family, those are all opportunities to do better. That's interesting. There's um, th there's this overlay with a Jungian worldview that I, I think about quite a lot. And there's a, an apparent, again, like a little bit of dichotomy and a little bit of tension um, between those kind of views. But the idea that we're living out stories and one thing that I think people get wrong with that is that we are, our story isn't fixed in, in one moment in time. We're constantly rewriting it. So our actions in this moment, they influence who we become or think of ourselves as in the future, which I think is fascinating. That it's, it's fluid, it's plastic, it's adapting to what's emotional and to what's um, salient to us at, at the time. There's a few things that I just want to run through that I thought were like, I, my brain went in about five different places you're speaking then. Um, so one of them that I just want to kind of highlight again is the idea of with that cheat sheet um, at the beginning of your previous book, it's almost like you're putting yourself through a testing phase, which is one thing that you would do with a strength conditioning plan. So you had an athlete who wanted to get stronger and fitter. The first thing you do is test where they are right now and identify the apparent flaws and weaknesses. And that seems right. then you can react, then you can grow, then you can train more specifically. And then one thing about journaling is like just to kind of, I'd actually like your opinion on this. One way that I've found to help myself and a lot of people in, in the past that I've coached is by pulling out stories from journaling. So I would actually sometimes get people to write in a very emotional way to like mm -hmm. to transfer how they would think in that moment or how they were thinking under under those set of stimuli yeah. to transfer as much emotion as there as possible and then at a later date comes comes it and we'll look at it together like what kind of story is that person acting out sure. how are they how are they believing so if the the commonality between those things is still you've got that second person overview as well you've got that kind of well we're going to come back and watch it read it as so you're someone else and then right. then tell me what you think kind of a little bit more rationally about it and then that transfers into the idea of self-talk and what we know about mastering self-talk yeah. from a, a sporting world and actually any kind of world is if you say, you can't, you do this. So if I think about some of my 30 miler in the Marines, I remember thinking to myself, come on, Foxy, you can do this. And it's like, there's, it's a way more assertive way of doing it. And, um, yeah, the, <laughs> I've just thrown things at you, um, but take with that what you want and, and run with it. Well, so the I find interesting the issue of journaling with uh, you know paying attention to your emotional reactions. Journaling is a broad term. Uh, you, it can be done in a number of ways. One of which is the one that you're talking about, uh, and another one is the one that I described a few minutes ago. Uh, and it may be effective depending you know in different contexts for different people, depending on what it is that they're looking at, and depending on who they are working with. The reason the Stoics do it the way they do it is because there is an issue in Stoicism with emotions. So maybe we should talk about that for a second. Um, we said earlier on at the beginning of our conversation that one of the misconceptions, common misconceptions uh, about Stoicism is that it is about suppressing emotions, which is not. 
for one thing, because you cannot suppress your emotions. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Um, and, uh, and, and the Stoics were not fools, so they, they understood that. However, there is, Stoicism has an issue with emotions in this particular sense. The Stoics think that emotions are partly cognitive, at least partly cognitive, meaning that, uh, for instance, if you get angry in a particular situation, right, and then uh, in the evening, the two of us go out for a drink, and I ask you, so why did you get angry? You will be able to tell me a story, talking about stories, as, as you just mentioned, right? You will be able, in other words, to tell, to, to come up with an explanation, whether that explanation is actually what happened or not, or is it, you know, is it accurate or not? That's a different issue. But, but you will have a story. That is, your anger did have a reason behind it. You may not have been aware of those reasons in the moment, uh, but if you think about it later, and because somebody asks you, you say, oh yeah, of course, you know, that, that jerk just started insulting me for no reason. That's why I got upset. And, and then we can dig a little further and say, oh wait, but, but why would you get upset if somebody insults you? Well, because insults are a bad thing and you know, I'm, I have to respond. Well, why do you have to respond and so on and so forth? So we can have a conversation basically about the structure and functioning of your emotions. Turns out, again, there is pretty good evidence from modern cognitive behavioral therapy that that is in fact the way emotions work. Uh, there is always a cognitive component. Uh, the initial reaction is not cognitive. So if when you're getting angry, for instance, right, uh, you, the, that feeling that you have a swelling inside your body, is like, that's your adrenaline starting rushing through your system. And that is, you have absolutely no control over that one. That's, that's just an automatic physiological reaction. But the fully formed emotion of fear, let's say, or anger or anything else or grief those are actually in part cognitive. They start out as a physiological reaction, but they are cognitive. And therefore, the Stoics think you can argue with them. Right? If, if an emotion, if your anger is partly cognitive, then you can argue with it. Uh, you cannot argue with it in the moment, they say. If, you know, telling yourself, I shouldn't be angry when you're about to get angry isn't going to work. Uh, it's, you're not, because anger is the kind of emotion that tends to override rational discourse. That's the whole point of it. So you're not going to be able to talk yourself. That would be suppressing your emotion. You cannot suppress your emotion. And so what the Stoics say is, under those circumstances, the best thing you can do is actually to disengage from the situation. If you feel the first movement of anger, as Seneca calls it, that kind of swelling in, the, in your body, then you know that's a, you can take that as an alarm bell you know you're getting angry. You know that you cannot control it, or you're going to have a really difficult time controlling it. So you you disengage. You go for a walk. You start, you know, counting to a hundred. You go to the bathroom. You take a bathroom break. Whatever it is that helps you get out of the situation. If you manage to get out of the situation, anger will, like any other emotion that surges, eventually will subside. It, it comes back down. If you don't feed it, if you don't actually stay in the situation and feed it, it will come down. Once it comes down, once it goes, goes down, that is the time to start engaging in the, the cognitive aspect. And then you can ask yourself, well, why the hell was I getting upset about this thing? What was triggering this, this reaction? How could I handle this better? And that's the moment where then you want to go back out and re-engage with whatever the situation was, because now you're actually looking at things in a different, from a different perspective. So the reason, so the way the Stoics treat some emotions is they are cognitive, you need to talk to them, and you need to modulate them. You need to come to terms with those emotions. And I said some emotions because those are, the, the ones that I've been talking about so far are the, the emotions that the Stoics refer to as unhealthy. Things like anger, uh, fear, for instance, uh, grief in with certain qualifications and so on and so forth. Why are they unhealthy? Because they all tend to override reason. When you are in the thralls of that kind of emotion, you don't think straight. They get in the way of your thinking, essentially. And since, of course, for a Stoic, the most important thing you can do, remember, is to think reasonably, <laughs> rationally. Anything that gets in the way of that, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And so you need to deal with it. But not all emotions are like that. There are some emotions that, according to the Stoics, are, as they put it, in agreement with reason. So, for instance, proper love 
you know, love for your family, love for your spouse, love for your children, that sort of stuff. That's a, that's a positive emotion. That's a healthy emotion that you actually want to nurture. Not only you don't want to talk it down, you actually want to talk it up. You, you want to enhance that kind of emotion or uh, a sense of justice so that you get uh, to uh, work for things that you think are just and, 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 and right, et cetera, et cetera. That is something that is a positive emotional response, a healthy emotional response, and so you should actually cultivate it. So it's not that the Stoics want to suppress emotions. What they do is they divide them into these two broad categories, the ones that are against reason or get in the way of reason and the ones that are aligned with reason. And they say, okay, let me talk the first ones down and talk the, the second ones up, basically. Interesting. There's a part of me that feels that that's slightly at odds with an evolutionary lens of negative emotion, which to me would go something along the lines of we've developed negative emotion for a reason um, and it must serve some purpose. Um, so I'm, I'm struggling to like kind of square that in my mind. Yeah, let me give you an example. Yeah, that's, that's a very good observation. And as an evolutionary biologist, I can, I can sympathize. But let me give you an example. So we evolved all our emotional repertoire uh, back you know, somewhere between half a million and two, three million years ago, you know, back in the Pleistocene. And as you know, the Pleistocene was a very different kind of environment from what it is today, <laughs> right? Uh, not both a physical environment, also more importantly, a social environment. That is, at that time, human beings were organized in very small bands of 60, 100 to 100 individuals, most of whom were actually related to each other. They were all each other's uncles and aunts and cousins and stuff like that. So group dynamic within group and between group dynamic was very different than what it is now. Now we live in much larger places where we are constantly exposed to complete strangers. I live in New York City, eight and a half million people. With my daughter, I just went to visit um, my daughter's husband's family in Brazil, Sao Paulo, 20 million people. So you, the, we are now in a situation that's completely different. So that right there tells you that perhaps some of the emotional repertoire that we evolved back in the places in might misfire. And let me give you an example of this. A very, I think an example that uh, most people would agree uh, on. Xenophobia. So xenophobia is a natural human emotion. It's a natural human response. It's basically being afraid and, and reacting, usually violently, uh, toward people that don't look like you, people that are coming clearly from the outside. Now, you can imagine, I mean, we don't know this for sure, but you can make, a, make up an easy evolutionary scenario where xenophobia actually evolved because, as it turns out, back in the Pleistocene, if somebody was wandering into your group from the outside, that probably wasn't good news. Probably, right? It, it was a safe bet that these people were not friendly necessarily. So evolving an instinct in a sense or an emotional repertoire that makes you wary and ready to fight against somebody who comes from the outside is probably adaptive. Mm -hmm. Transfer that to the 21st century with a planet of you know, close to 10 billion people, um, a number of, of whom are armed with nuclear weapons, that's probably not a good idea. Being xenophobic is probably not a good idea. Uh, you should try to be as friendly as possible and as cooperative. There's the soundbite for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a very different kind of situation. So you can say, sure, that emotion evolved and probably for good reasons. But now we live in a situation where uh, the, the, the way in which we interact with other people is much more complicated. It's much more difficult and it requires a different type. I mean, you can, you know, people have argued even outside of stoicism um, for a long time that one of the major problems that human, the human race as a whole has faced ever since the invention of agriculture, which is when things started changing. The, the, the pivotal point was the invention of agriculture about 10 to 12,000 years ago. Because agriculture made it possible for people to settle, move from a uh, lifestyle of, you know, nomadic lifestyle of hunter and gathering to a, a settlement kind of thing. So the population could increase. And therefore, if the population increases, now you have division of labor. You know, it used to be that everybody pretty much was doing, was pitching in at pretty much the same level. Now we have specific jobs for specific people that also led to an increase in uh, sort of 
hierarchy somebody's going to be in charge of uh, this stuff and there has to be a way to defend yourself so now you have a warrior class that sort of stuff things started changing with the agricultural revolution now plenty of observ observers plenty of commentators have have uh, made the point that perhaps a major if not the major problem that we've had ever since is that our technology has improved at a breathtaking pace, especially over the last few centuries, while our emotional repertoire and our way of thinking about stuff is still back into the Pleistocene. And that's why we have a lot of problems, that our technology gets better and better and more and more powerful and therefore also more and more little, but we still think like apes back into the Pleistocene. We still are affected by xenophobia. We still are affected by what the Stoics called these, the, the uh, unreasonable un, uh, emotions. And um, yeah, I, I think there is something to it, even outside of Stoicism. I think that's uh, something to consider at least. Yeah. Um, it makes you think, what is going to happen with us psychologically yeah. when we have AI embedded into our skulls and mm -hmm. we can instantly think of any answer? The, the the rationality that you can have access to overlay or over, over the surface of a very emotional response it'd be crazy would be crazy and i'm not so sure that uh you know it's it's an open bet where things are gonna go uh with that over the next few, few years or decades we'll, we'll see we'll find out absolutely so talk to me about the quest for character and the release of that and the the process as, as well of, of creating it and what and what it's there for like wh why have you created that book yeah, the, the Quest for Character is the, the latest book that I put out. It's a, it starts out with a story that always fascinated me, and that's why I wanted to write the book in the first place. And that's the story of Socrates and Alcibiades. You can see the cover right behind me. Uh, and uh, the guy on, the, on my left is Socrates. The other guy is Alcibiades. Alcibiades was a very young person. He was about 20 years younger than, Arist than uh, Socrates. Uh, and he was... He had everything you can possibly want in life. He was impossibly handsome, uber rich, uh, descended from two, not one, but two of the best families in Athens, brave. And, you know, he was like handsome. It was amazing, an amazing kind of guy. However, he did not have a particularly good character. He was an extreme narcissist. Uh, he, was, he was clearly after uh, uh, things for himself and not for the common good. And so there is this dialogue, it's a platonic dialogue written by Plato, where a, a very young Alcibiades goes to Socrates because Socrates was his friend and his mentor and says, so I'm thinking of getting into politics. What do you think? And then what follows and I recount that in the beginning, near the beginning of the book, is basically a job interview where Socrates starts grilling Alcibiades. Well, okay, so do you want to be a politician? You want to lead Athens? What, what would you do? How would you approach the thing? You know, what, what sort of priorities would you have, etc.? And then it becomes very clear at some point that Alcibiades is not the kind of leader you want. And Socrates tells him, it's like, you know, my dear Alcibiades, unfortunately, it's going to be a catastrophe if you actually follow into your your current your current path because you just don't get it you don't seem to and you're very bright but you don't seem to understand that a leader especially the leader of a, of a of a community of a political community is somebody that has to work for others on behalf of the common good you only want to work for yourself and this is going to be a, a disaster sure enough it is Alcibiades ignores Socrates' advice. He goes on into politics and, uh, you know, a couple of decades later, he's dead and uh, Athens has lost the Peloponnesian War against Sparta. So that is a story that, that gives me the opportunity at the beginning of the book to talk about character. Clearly, Alcibiades' character was flawed. And the question is, you know, can we improve our character? Can we actually have, can we get, to a situation where our leaders especially have a better character? Or are we condemned perennially to have bad leaders who actually are narcissists and do things for their own, uh, for their own good and not for the, com for the common good? And it's, it's a really interesting question. I think it's a very current question, as you know, where mm -hmm. the United States is approaching yet another presidential election where uh, issues of character are very important. Right? It's not just about policy. Policy is important, of course. You, you, you do want to elect people 
that broadly speaking, at least are, are moving forward things in the way you think they should be move, moving forward. But character is crucial because even if you agree with the, with the policies of a person, but that person turns out to be crooked and, 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 and narcissist, then you probably are making the wrong choice. So the book explores the whole concept of character, how it has been approached in antiquity, uh, because there was a lot of thinking. I mean, virtue ethics is entirely about character, essentially. But then it moves on to more modern times. It goes through uh, more recent treatment of the question of character, uh, for instance, in Machiavelli, in Hobbes, and then eventually in the 20th century. And it ends with a, a sur survey of the science uh, behind the study of character. What does the modern cognitive science actually tell us about character and how to improve it? That, uh, that sort of question. Wonderful. And I presume people can get that from any good bookstore. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> or even um, not so good bookstores. <laughs> even not so good. You let it in there as well. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me. Um, I can't tell you much. I've enjoyed this conversation and it's um, got a few things really firing in my mind as well um, and, and how to develop as, as a human being. So thank you so much. Where can people follow you, find out more about you, um, get your books, obviously? Well, the pleasure, first of all, was reciprocal. Thanks for having me. Uh, people can find me not on social media because I'm not there anymore. Uh, they can find a, a lot of what I do is on a site that's called newstoicism.org. Uh, it has a, essentially a collection of most of the stuff that I do in that, in that department. Or on Substack, my newsletter there, it's called Figs in Winter. Perfect. Thank you so much, Massimo. It was a pleasure.